Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Uh, started on April 6th, 1994, the Rwandan president's plane was shot down, and Hutu militias heeded this as a call to begin their mission to exterminate all the Tutsis. For 100 days, these citizen militias shot and hacked their way across the country. They killed more than 800,000 people. 25 years later, nothing short of a miracle has taken place in the country of Rwanda. Back in 2014, the New York Times actually ran a story that highlighted some of the miraculous events that have taken place. In the picture on the screen are, uh, is a couple, and uh, the couple's name is, uh, they're not married, but the man's name is Juvenal I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I'm just going to say it with confidence, and we'll, that, that's how we'll work. It's Zambamwita. Sound good? Okay. Uh, the woman's name is Kansilde Kampundu. Uh, juvenile, juvenile is a Hutu. He says, I damaged and looted her property. This is in the New York Times. I spent nine and a half years in jail. I had been educated to know good from evil before being released. And when I came home, I thought it would be good to approach the person to whom I did evil deeds and ask for her forgiveness. I told her that I would stand by her with all the means at my disposal. My own father was involved in killing her children. When I learned that my parents had behaved so wickedly, for that I profoundly begged her pardon as well. Concildi is a Tutsi. She said, my husband was hiding and men hunted him down and killed him on a Tuesday. The following Tuesday, they came back and killed my two sons. I was hoping that my daughters would be saved, but then they took them to my husband's village and killed them and threw them in a latrine. I was not able to remove them from the hole. I knelt down and prayed for them along with my younger brother, and covered the latrine with dirt. The reason I granted pardon is because I realized that I would never get back the beloved ones that I had lost. I could not live a lonely life. I wondered if I was ill, who was going to stay by my bedside? And if I was in trouble and cried for help, who was going to rescue me? I preferred to grant pardon. Those stories like that are repeated over and over again in Rwanda. In fact, in Rwanda today, there are six communities known as reconciliation villages. In these reconciliation villages, there are communities where victims and murderers live together as neighbors. The murderers have asked for public forgiveness, and the victims, the survivors, have granted that pardon. Radical forgiveness being extended across a nation whose population was reduced by roughly 10%. When we think about forgiveness, we understand that it is indeed a very powerful tool. Using it correctly can heal tremendous hurts. Withholding it 
can damage people and families for life. Can you imagine what a nation like Rwanda would look like today if they were not able to embrace such a radical notion of forgiveness? This morning, I'm going to ask us to leave the book of Exodus and flip over just a couple of books to the book of Numbers. I know that some of you are truly devastated that I won't be doing a lengthy series to the book of Leviticus and detailing all the sacrifices in full. I'll save that for another Sunday. Instead, let's go to Numbers chapter 12. We'll read the entire chapter this morning just because I'm letting you skip Leviticus. Uh, but let's stand together as we read Numbers chapter 12 this morning. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, then I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside of the camp seven days, and after this she may be brought in again. And so Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. God, I thank you for a powerful chapter demonstrating clear forgiveness. God, may we be willing, like Moses, to forgive those who've wronged us, that we can walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Catching us up to the book of Numbers, the end of the book of Exodus, where we left, it details the construction of the tabernacle. If you recall last week, the, the nation gave generously to meet the financial demands of the tabernacle. They end up giving more than was necessary. We then move into the book of Leviticus, which is a, a challenging book, but it gives very specific details about the sacrificial system and the laws that govern it. When you read through Leviticus, you won't find much that moves the story along, but it is an important, though difficult, book for our consideration. 
Then we move into the book of Numbers, and Numbers begins with the journey to the promised land. The, the first 10 chapters, uh, it deals with some final bookkeeping that, that sorts out, the, uh, that deals with some logistics and some additional legal instructions. The end of chapter 10 contains the departure from Mount Sinai. And we get one chapter removed from the departure and all the goodwill that was generated by the generosity of the Israelites. And all of that is eroded as they immediately start complaining and fussing and fuming. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 5 contain a very familiar refrain. We read this. Now the rabble that was among them had, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I apologize if the offer of cucumbers and melons and leeks and garlics makes you hungry today. You'll be at lunch soon enough. But just to be clear, we are very far removed from Egypt, both physically, chronologically, and spiritually. Much has transpired in the last year that the Israelites have moved away from Egypt. But then again, there is this strong lure that this bondage has on its victims. Egyptian bondage offered a nice salad bar and fresh fish. But at what cost? Freedom that's given to us by the Lord offered them daily bread that met every need without so much as the, the crack of a taskmaster's whip on their back. Yet in the midst of their freedom, they longed for the slavery of Egypt. We get to chapter 12, and the grumbling, the murmuring, the complaining has gotten from the rabble to the top. You see, in chapter 11, it's the rabble that starts the trouble. Well, what in the world is the rabble? Well, the rabble is this nameless group of people who are along the periphery. Chapter 12 changes all that. And now the grumbling is coming from a very trusted source, from Moses' very own family, Aaron and Miriam. Well, let's take a moment this morning to think about the specifics of their complaint. We're told in the text that their criticism towards Moses is due to the fact that he married a Cushite woman. In fact, in verse 1, her ethnicity is described twice as her being a Cushite woman. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about Moses, and we know a lot about him. And one of the things we know about Moses is that his personal life is not very well detailed for us. He married a woman by the name of Zipporah. We know, uh, we know there were children that were had. We know those things. But, but Moses, is, his personal life is very shielded in his story. And so the Midianite woman that he married, Zipporah, that's not who he's talking about here. But Zipporah is not a huge factor in his life. She's absent in a portion of the story, at least. And so here it appears that Moses has remarried to a, a Cushite woman not named Zipporah. So perhaps Zipporah uh, died. We, we don't know what's happened to Zipporah, but Moses has apparently remarried. Now, what is a Cushite woman? A Cushite woman is a woman from Cush. And you say, well, where is Cush? Well, Cush is the region south of Egypt. If you look on a map of Africa, you might see a country called Ethiopia. That's kind of where Cush is uh, in that day and time. 
And because we know that she's Cushite, there's a couple of things we can ascertain about her. The most important of which is that she has very dark skin. Our best guess suggests that this woman left Egypt when the Israelites did. And at some point in her life, she developed an allegiance to the Lord. And now Moses has married this woman, and his family is none too thrilled. And the cause of their criticism is Moses' choice for a wife. But if you'll notice that that's not how they attack him. They attack his source of authority. Look at verse 2. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And then there's a scary sentence in the Scripture, And the Lord heard it. Now if you cry out for mercy, and you hear the reply, And the Lord heard it, well, amen. If you're praying for your neighbor and you hear, and the Lord heard it, you say, well, praise God. But if you're complaining about something and it's Moses here and you hear, and the Lord heard it, you better duck. Why are they criticizing Moses? You know, it's a reminder here that those closest to us know where best to put the daggers to inflict the most pain. Uh, As far as our best guess is that their criticism here is driven by a sort of, 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 of ethnic or racial privilege. That because this woman is a Cushite, then, then there's something inferior about her. There's something that she's not like the Israelites. She's not like the Hebrews. And so they're motivated by her race, but their complaint is around Moses' authority. And we know as we've studied Moses, if he's self-conscious about anything, I bet this is something he continued to wrestle with. His, his role as the leader, his, his right as a leader. He knows his past. It's no secret that he's a murderer. That, that's not hidden from him. And so here is this murderer that God has established to be the leader of this nation. I'm certain that he struggles with, with, with issues of inferiority. And you constantly hear him in his, in his complaints to the Lord about the Israelites. I'm not their daddy. I didn't, I didn't, these aren't my, I didn't have these people. Lord, who am I to be in charge of these people? And here, what they're saying, Moses, you married a Cushite woman. You married a woman who's not like us. Are you really fit to lead us? That's the problem with that sort of racism. It's not very rational. It doesn't make much sense to, to think down upon someone because of their nation of origin or the color of their skin. The color of this woman's skin, where she's from, had no bearing whatsoever on Moses' ability to lead. And it would be one thing if God said, you know, Aaron, Mo, Miriam, y'all are right. He shouldn't have married this gal. God is silent. He never rebukes Moses for this marriage. He never says anything negative about it. He doesn't critique this relationship. In fact, what God says as a result of this are very positive things about Moses' character. Verse 3 points out his meekness and humility. He, he's not at the top because he's, he's climbed the corporate ladder because he's trying to, to reach the, the pinnacle of his profession. He's at the top simply because God wanted him there. 
He was content to live out his days shepherding his father-in-law's flocks in Midian, but God came to him that day in the burning bush and said, you're no longer shepherding the flocks of Midian. I've got a bigger flock for you to shepherd. Moses wasn't looking for position or power or authority. He's meek. He's humble. Furthermore, when God's wrath burns against Aaron and Miriam, Moses is the one who intercedes on their behalf. He's the one who steps in the gap. He's the one who prays for his family. So Moses' character comes out shining as a result of this encounter. Well, what happens? Verses 4 through 9 show us that God's pretty hot right now. He's pretty angry. And he's angry because this sort of toxic criticism is contagious. We are so close to the promised land right here. It's literally just days away. And here we are struggling with criticizing the man whose responsibility is to get him to the promised land. And it's an unjust criticism. They're not calling out his ability to lead. They're calling out because they didn't like his wife. It's not a fair criticism for Moses in this place. And, and this, this criticism is, is toxic and it, it'll, it'll flow down from the top. By virtue of their criticizing Moses whom we know God chose to have in that place, Aaron and Miriam are also criticizing God. Did you really choose the right man? God, you could have done better. You should have put us in charge. Why did you put Moses in charge? So when the cloud departed, Miriam was the clear victim of God's wrath, which also tells us that she was probably the ringleader in this family coup. She was the one who was stirring the pot, so to speak. And what do we find? We find that she is covered in leprosy. And there's a bit of an irony there. Because the Bible says that she was covered in leprosy and she was white like snow. The irony is when you compare her condition to the condition of Moses' wife. His injunction against Miriam, he contrasted her with the dark skin of Moses' wife. Now, this family conflict could have been catastrophic. It could have been catastrophic for the nation of Israel because this is the first family of, of Israel's leadership team, and it is crumbling apart right here. If there had been a rift between Moses and Aaron, that would have been hard to overcome, hard to bounce back from. At the same time, you know this conflict hurt. You know, conflict between close friends and family it could be painful, especially when it's personal. It's not like they were criticizing him because they didn't like the choice of rug that he had in his tent. Moses, is that the best you can do? That's so ugly. That's not what they were criticizing. They weren't fussing about his wardrobe choice for the day. Their criticism at him was about his wife and his leadership. They were trying to position themselves as de facto leaders. And this hurt ran deep. I'm going to tell you something. You attack my wife, that cuts to the bone. That cuts deep. It hurts bad. And that's what they do. My inclination is if you do that, is, is to get you back or never have anything to do with you again. Because that's how bad that hurts. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but that's my response because it hurts. But Moses doesn't act that way. 
What does Moses do once he realizes what the wrath of God has left behind? He then crosses his arms and says, well, you, that'll teach you. Well, that's our tendency, right? Don't mess with him, right? What's Moses do? He prays for those who hurt him. It wasn't a long prayer. He didn't recite any chapters of books. It was a very short, concise prayer. It simply said this, Oh God, please heal her. Please. It wasn't long, but it was sincere. I want to tell you this morning, if you want to work towards forgiving someone who has sinned against you, then the very first thing you need to do is pray for them. If you want to get to that place to where you can actually forgive that person who has wronged you, they've said something they shouldn't have said, it cuts you to the bone, you don't ever want to talk to them again, see them again, deal with them again, you want to just harbor that for the rest of your life, if you want to get to the place where you can truly say, I forgive you. Step one is to pray for them. If you're angry at them, pray for them. If you are bitter, pray for them. It's easy to lash out in anger. It's easy to harbor a grudge, although the consequences are fierce. It's hard to forgive. But forgiveness begins when the Lord does a work in your heart. And that always starts when we pray. It's hard to stay mad at somebody when you're laying them at the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard. And when you consider Jesus' teaching on prayer, one of the themes that seems to come up a lot is, is Jesus' instructions for us to pray for folks that we don't really get along with. He, he says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said over in Luke chapter 6, he said, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Those are some of the hardest things that Jesus could say. I heard one preacher say it this way, whether others persecute or abuse or hate or curse us, we are to pray for them. They may be family members whose abuses are small and annoying. Quote, unquote, loved ones that we don't think of as enemies but sometimes act like they are. Or they may be mortal enemies who really do plan to kill us. Small or great, we are to pray for them. If you've ever been down that road, you know this to be true, though. Prayer doesn't immediately wave pixie dust or a magic wand of forgiveness over all situations. If you've been hurt before, praying for them is not immediately going to fix it, but it certainly moves you in the right direction. In fact, if you've been hurt, your first prayer when you're at your maddest may not even be reflective of a desire to forgive. Pray when you're mad and see what happens. Pray when you're hot under the collar and see what words come out. Hey, here's the good news. God can handle your angry prayer. God's big enough to take it. God can handle your mad prayer. 
God can take it. Read through the Psalms and you'll see Psalms that were written when David was at his maddest. And it made it into the Word of God. God can handle our angry prayers. But God is good. And if we will let him, he will begin to soften that anger-hardened heart and do a remarkable work of reconciliation. It's not good for us to harbor resentment, to bear grudges, to hold on to anger. It's not good for us. It's not good for our churches. It's not good for our families. But the fix starts with something simple. It starts with Jesus. On September 10th, 2018, Dallas police officer Amber Geiger entered into an apartment. She thought it was her apartment, but at the end of a long shift, she was on the wrong floor. She put her key in the lock, and the lock was already unlocked. She opened the door, and she looked in, and there was a man sitting on the sofa in the living room. After a 13-hour shift, Officer Geiger believed that there was an intruder in her apartment. She said in her statement that the man made an advance towards her, and so she pulled out her service gun, her service gun shot two times. One of those bullets went into his chest and killed him there in the apartment. Officer Geiger was charged with murder for the death of Botham Jean. Now, whether she should have been convicted of murder or manslaughter or whoever it is to take the blame for this. She was convicted on October 2nd this month. And in her sentencing hearing, the victim's brother took the stand. This is the scene that unfolded in that Texas courtroom. Botham's brother keyed in on something absolutely essential. Jesus is the solution to our forgiveness problems. That's it. Jesus is the solution to our forgiveness problems. It could be that our first prayer when we start wrestling with forgiveness is as simple as this, Lord, cool my anger. But Jesus is the solution to our forgiveness problems. In our church, in our families, there is a great need for us to extend forgiveness. But I believe this. If Moses can pray for healing for the woman who attacked him in his most vulnerable place, if a woman in Rwanda can forgive the man who murdered her husband, her sons, and her daughters. If the brother of a murdered man can embrace his brother's killer in the courtroom, what is it that stops us from granting forgiveness to the folks in our lives. They may not even deserve to be forgiven, 
In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam never once says, I'm sorry. She doesn't apologize. Yet Moses prays, please, Lord, heal her, please. Let's remember this one thing. There is not a one of us in the room today who deserves to be forgiven by a holy God. None of us deserved it. None of us earned it. But our God in heaven grants it freely to all who would ask. Would you pray with me, please? Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.